This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Coming up, we bring you our first English Heritage book review. You suddenly realise the out-of-the-wayness of so many of these stories. That sense of being sort of remote from perhaps the most obvious centres of perhaps rational thought and seems somehow to kind of breed this relationship with myth. We'll hear how these stories were put together and who wrote them. And the choice was in some ways very personal. It was just me thinking about authors that I liked and approaching their agents and hoping that they would say yes. And fortunately, most of them did. And we'll explain which legendary historic sites the authors were inspired by. Joining us to talk about the book are journalist and reviewer James Kidd and English Heritage Publishing Manager Catherine Davey. The title is These Our Monsters, the English heritage book of new folktale, myth and legend. And it features stories by eight well-known writers who've all been inspired by the locations and folklore of certain English heritage sites. Uh, Catherine, I'll start with you first. How did English heritage come up with the concept for the book? Well, we decided that we wanted to have another collection of short stories. We'd had we'd done one in 2017, which is ghost stories. And this one was going to be on myths and legends because that was the theme that we were exploring at English Heritage this year. So we decided that we'd ask authors to take a myth of their choice, that one of the myths that were connected to an English Heritage site in some way, and then explore them as they wanted to, which involved, in some cases, retelling the myth and in other cases, coming up with something which was entirely new and had a, a sort of slight connection to an old legend or folklore. So how did you choose your eight authors and why eight authors? Well, actually, it wasn't that we decided on eight authors. It was that that's what we ended up with because there were originally 10 and then for various reasons that was reduced to eight. But eight was our cutoff, really. With I think anything under than that under that would made quite a short book. And the choice was in some ways very personal. It was just me thinking about authors that I liked and approaching their agents and hoping that they would say yes. And fortunately, most of them did. And then in one case, in the case of Sarah Moss, I was in a bookshop thinking, now who am I going to ask next? And then I started reading her Ghost Road, I think it is. And I just thought this is fantastic. I can't put it down. So I thought I'll have to ask this person. And of course, I've since read the book and loved it. So it was sort of a bit of exploration on my part, really. So you're a big fan of the ones that you've picked Yes, I am. Because some of them I knew very well, like Graham McRae Burnett, whose bloody project I'd loved. And that was the one that was up for the booker. Mm -hmm. I just thought it was so dark and atmospheric and lots of landscape in it. And I thought that's perfect for what we're looking for. And he writes about the dark thread in in this set of um, collections. And and with a very strong sense of the landscape, which James was talking about before we started. Mm. And then others were similarly obvious, like Paul Kingsnorth, who wrote about the Saxon rebellion against the Norman invasion. So he was very strongly into English history and landscape and that kind of thing. So he was an obvious choice. But then others were sort of new to me. But really, it was about if I thought the writing had that quality which, which worked with the other writers... And inevitably it's personal because I would be unlikely to approach an agent for an author whose writing I didn't admire. And out of the three styles that we're going to talk, uh, three collections of stories that we're going to talk about today, they are all very different in style. So 
Yes, which is interesting. You've cast each character quite well in that sense. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, there's something for everyone. (laughs) Yes. So let's look at some of the English heritage sites which 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 feature. They're quite far flung in various different places around around England. I mean, in some ways, it was it's quite tricky because obviously English heritage sites tend to post date myth myth coming out of you know who knows when exactly, but prehistory often. So apart from Stonehenge, which is obviously been around for many thousands of years, the sites we have don't tend to have myths, not many myths attached to them. So Tintagel being one where there is obviously a reference in myth and Tintagel existed at the time that that myth came about, which is it's the story that Adam... King Arthur? Thought, yes, King Arthur. and He was supposedly born there? No, he wasn't. He was conceived there. But he's become the main figure attached to it. But actually it's not. It's Tristan and Isolde who were originally attached to... Tintagel. Mm. And it's that story that Adam Thorpe talks about in his story. But really, because there's a, there were limited options, there was quite a short list. And then it became a question of offering that list to the authors and the authors thinking, presumably, oh, I'm closer to that site or I'm more interested in that site. It's like Fiona Mosley was interested because she's a medieval scholar. She's, a, she's already written about Gawain and Arthurian myth. And so that influenced her in choosing that. And I think from James's interview with McRae Burnett, he was really interested in, in Dracula because he's been pretty obsessed with Dracula as a child, it yes. seems. So their reasons were esoteric. I don't really, I don't know exactly, but they yeah. didn't have that many options. So those ones are Whitby Abbey for the Whitby Dark Abbey, Thread. yes. For Graham's story. And Fiona's is Carlisle Castle. Yes. And Edward Carey is Barry St. Edmund's Abbey. And those are the three ones that we'll talk about today. But yes. are there any other sites that, apart from Stonehenge as well, that, that feature in, in the eight? Great Pucklands, which is... Oh, yes, of course. Downhouse, which is Alison McLeod's story. So that's Charles Darwin's house where he, his family lived and where he did his work and so on. And mm-hmm. Alison has written a story about fairies because there's a field which is actually part of the property, which was called Pucklands and that was that name comes out of old English myth about that was the field of fairies and so she talks about that then Berwick Castle which is actually doesn't specifically have a myth attached to it but the author Sarah Moss she talks about the myth of the red caps which were these border goblins basically the Scottish English border and these goblins were thought to lure travelers into castle dungeons and so on and then drop stones on their head and because they were they were sort of manifestations of violence between the Scots and the English and there were all sorts of ideas about that about actually very long time ago people possibly did blood sacrifices before they started building a castle and so there's blood under the stone so that's one idea or there's the idea that actually it's a they're almost like a sort of ghostly presence because of all the violence that has taken place in those castles. And obviously there was a lot of violence on the border castles. And so Berwick being one of them, Sarah set her story there. Okay. That was the basis for that. I think it is quite important reading the collection as a whole to you suddenly realise that the out of the wayness of, of so many of these stories, and I think the, the Borderlands one is, is, is really fascinating, these places far from what we would consider to be centres of things, so urban spaces. And that sense of being sort of remote from perhaps the most obvious centres of advancement, of perhaps rational thought, and seems somehow to kind of breed this relationship with myth, with mm. things that are a bit strange. Getting back into nature, you, you can look at shapes in trees and, and maybe what a silhouette looks like against the moon and 
suddenly that sort of starts conjuring up images of werewolves or vampires or whatever. Yes. Well, let's find out a bit more from you, Catherine, as well, how these stories were put together. You've selected, obviously, eight authors. And did they go to each location? Did they spend a certain amount of time there um, it, doing research and then penning the stories? How did it, it work? It varied quite a bit. And it depended very much on where they lived. So Edward Carey lives in Texas. So he didn't go to Woolpit in Suffolk, <laughs> as you can imagine. Although, interestingly, has been since, because I think he comes over to England quite a bit because he's originally English. But he sort of focused on Bury St Edmunds Abbey as a... He knew it from childhood, didn't he? So he was sort of... He grew up in Norfolk, he, I think. So he could conjure that up in memory, even if not maybe the village of Woolpit. Paul Kingsnorth, I know, went to Stonehenge... Also, after having written a story, but obviously knows Stonehenge. Where does he, he live? He lives in Ireland, so, right. so that was tricky for him. And then two of the authors live in Scotland, so they both visited the sites beforehand. So one was Graham McRae Burnett, so he visited Whitby and spent a good day there. And, and you can really tell in the story that it's very site atmospheric, I think. What was interesting is the story is about partly about Bram Stoker walking around Whitby and experiencing certain amounts of emotional and mental turmoil and McCray Burnett was walking around, but writing as he went, he began writing the story as he walked towards Whitby Abbey and through the streets, and he stopped to, to begin the story. So How I thought it was interesting, interesting. that the, the two yeah. things sort of mapped on each other. So I hope, I hope he's all right now. And uh, <laughs> Not in mental <laughs> turmoil, It yes. does get a bit dark in that one. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that later on. I wanted to talk to you both as well about who this book is written for, because there are some adult themes Yes. We Certainly in the selection that we picked out. <laughs> we thought adults and it's pitched at a sort of, it's literary really, literary fiction. So that's the background of the authors. So mm. it would be that classic audience, I suppose. About the stories, how would you, between the two of you, describe roughly speaking what, what they are? What are their general sort of themes? My overall feeling was of enormous variety, not just across the collection, but often within the collection. So the McCray Burnett story, for example, it mixes a sort of gothic murder story with something like a very personal psychological thriller, with obviously a sort of a fictionalized biography of a writer at a moment of personal and professional crisis, having an idea for, for what becomes one of the most famous novels ever written. I think what struck me about them is that there's something very personal about each story. But they seem to take a very personal viewpoint. So I think they all do that very well. They all go into very particular character and then explore the myth from there. What was very noticeable about this collection was how the often fragile mental states of people um, was a real preoccupation. And it, it did make me wonder how often some of the strange happenings of myth were human beings at, at, at stages not understanding the kinds of emotional and mental state that they were experiencing and having to invent stories to explain those feelings. Death and grief comes through a lot of them, doesn't it? And I suppose that's one of those big human questions. How do you mm. deal with that? How do you see what happens to people after, you know, it, is there something that happens to people after death and all that sort of thing and how do you cope with it? And that's in quite a few of the stories, which is not necessarily there in the myth, the original myth. Well, let's look at some of the stories in, in more detail. Edward Carey, these are monsters. And now that's these, our monsters, not 
well, these are, um, you know, as in these are monsters, these aren't. Um, it's these our monsters. And, and this is inspired by Barry St. Edmund's Abbey. Uh, so we can hear some of that extract right now. Now we have it. The proof of the strange things certain. We here captured among our people true, the real, the actual Goblins are true. Look, look, we have green, we have goblins at home. Goblins in August, goblins on a Thursday. Sometime between two and three are we having goblins? And will the three bells sound for three of the clock now? Or is all halted because of green people? Are we to die now, soonish? When I was reading this text, the first thing that struck me is the language. It seems to be quite cryptic, a bit peculiar, even alienating. It's not easy to read, even staccato, this sort of staccato rhythm. What's your impression of the of this story? I think the idea is that it's meant to conjure up a very local community and not educated in the, in the traditional sense community into which these strange children turn up and alarm everyone. Who are green. They're green, yes. And what, what myth is it trying to also hark back to? There are a couple of written versions of it, but apparently these two small, supposedly green children appear to a tight-knit community. And I think the sort of staccato, jagged pace which gathers and regathers at various points during the story, I think narrates the various emotional reactions to it, which veers from, I think, initial shock to astonishment to fear, to violent hatred, a mounting hysteria, but also at other times to a kind of form of self-questioning and eventually to a, a really strange and probably just equally as unnerving affection for them once, and I, this is to avoid any spoiler, once they they disappear from the, the village. And I think it's a, watching Edward perform that reading, he was... He was taken over, and, and the, I think the voice is it's a little bit like Gollum from The Lord of the Rings. That was my thought as well, actually. Um, yeah. Sort of crossed with Alf Garnet, desperately trying to understand what is in, has appeared in front of them, this utterly strange alien and alienating sight. How do you deal with it? Let's move on to another one, uh, which is Fiona Mosley's The Loathly Lady, and this plays on Carlisle Castle. Huntsman spot a heart in a thicket of bracken. Hounds bay, horses gallop. The deer hears the clamour and stands dead still. Clothed in green, in a blinking wood, leaves like eyelids, fluttering, flickering. Green like sunshine, green like night. A wood, a heart, the once and future king. They have been here before, they will come here again. He will follow a beast and it will follow him. They will evince, they will evade, they will venture, they will vanquish, they will dance, they will court. They will wrestle, they will sing. So the first thing I want to say after hearing that is that this one was actually my favourite of the three that we're going to be talking about today because I think it was the most reminiscent of the fairy tales that I would know from growing up as a child and watching mm. Disney films and that sort of thing. The language, again, is, is very interesting, quite short sentences, but it's very visual. It's almost like you can see it in your mind's eye, the way that everything has been described. And there's, there's a part in that where she's talking about the king hunting a deer and the fleeting image of the deer disappearing behind the trees. And I think that's all very visual and evocative. What's your impression of the storytelling? 
I agree. And I think just listening again to that, it's interesting how she uses repetition. I absolutely was seeing that green wood, you know, with the green light and the branches and everything. And, and she really does conjure that up. It's very interesting to see the idea of Arthur as this this young ruler full of potential. He's the king, the king who would. But he's also entitled. That's right. And I think that's what the And I think this is the about. lesson, isn't it? Yeah, so entitled that he gets to dispose of one of his friend's futures. And without giving away too much, obviously, it's obviously involving King Arthur. It's his nephew. His nephew. Yes. He talks about the future of the nephew there, putting that in danger. And then there's the loathly lady who eventually comes into the story. And then there's this sort of adversarial figure. Um, knight, isn't he? The knight, that's it. it? It's, the name it's, it's the knight who tells Arthur that you must agree to what I'm about to do a deal with you about. And then that's where the story sort of develops from there, and that's where the loathly lady comes in eventually. It's a, cl- it's a sort of classic but slightly strange quest story, and, and the quest is tr- is driven by the sort of question that uh, and it may well have actually inspired a Hollywood movie, which is, what do women want? And I think you're absolutely right when you were saying about this idea of entitlement. If the Edward Carey story is, is a sort of Brexit, Trumpian tale, then I think this story is the Time's Up contribution and what's very noticeable is the question what do women want is asked by a man to a man who asks another man to help him find the answer and I think Fiona Mosley it was drawing on a a very particular medieval version of it not the Chaucer but I think an anonymous narrative so that there's obviously a way in which this is critiquing a kind of chivalric code where men fulfill certain roles and women who are objectified and presented in, in very strict ways. And it's as though a little bit like the appearance of the green children, this question blows the entire universe to pieces. And it starts with the two men sniggering about it. And then partly because Arthur's life is on the line, having to take it more and more seriously. And I think what Mosley does very cleverly is both represent this very ancient text, but obviously place it within our present day and I think leaves the reader to draw his or her own conclusions. What's interesting though is that I totally agree she brings it absolutely up to date and there's a lovely sort of light comic touch throughout I think but that the story itself and the result itself existed right back in the 12th century you know at least so that's interesting that even then people were questioning the chivalric code, even though that's when we think of as being the epitome of the chivalric code. So let's move on to the next story, which is Graham McRae Burnett, and his is called The Dark Thread, and this plays upon Whitby Abbey. The shadow from which I thought I had unshackled myself has returned. Whether this horror is real or merely the handiwork of my imagination, I cannot say. Nor can I say which of these possibilities disturbs me more. So that is quite a dark, sombre, moody read. My interpretation of this story is that it's it's made up of a series of sort of literary links. We have newspaper clippings, we have diary entries, journals, letters. And this is a sort of journey into the mind of Bram Stoker as he's writing Dracula. Would I be right? Yes, Oh, good. (laughs) Okay, A star for me. (laughs) Okay, well, I've got that right then. But it's not a story in a traditional sense, in a way. It's sort of drawn together by all these sort of little vignettes. 
which are you sort of get a sense of once you sort of get through them and sort of accept that this is the format of this story. It's almost like a puzzle, isn't it? Yeah. You sort of you have to know a little bit about Dracula. Yeah, and, and uh, then and then you sort of piece together. Ah, so this was this was how it came about. Yeah. So for people who don't know the story of Dracula and how it plays upon Whitby Abbey, can either of you explain a bit more about that? I think he visited, and I think he visited at a point of near physical and mental exhaustion. He he worked for the famously driven and domineering actor Henry Irving, who many people believe inspired the character of Dracula. And Stoker was his manager, his agent. He organised these extraordinary tours through America, and Irving, in lots of ways, dominated Stoker's life, his imagination. There are hints of sexual relationship, which McCray Burnett nudges once or twice, but it's, a lot of it's unclear. And I think that's why, a bit like with the, the story about Darwin, gives itself to something mythic. I think there's something about the creation of, of these extraordinary artworks that we're always fascinated in but can't ever quite put our finger on. So I think, I think there's something about... Dracula, the vampire, which is obviously given to folklore, but there's something about Stoker's interaction with it, which has become something mythic in it. Almost like he's been possessed in a way, that he is troubled by these thoughts and he has to resort to sort of alcohol or or whatever to sort of quell his troubled, agitated mind. Yes, and I think that what works so well in the story is the way the language is so formal and restrained and slightly distancing isn't it? And so there's this idea of this man who's obviously in mental turmoil, but it's almost as if he's got some sort of clamp on, you know, that even his the language, even in his own diary, is very formal and restrained. And this idea that he takes wine in order to precipitate relaxation or whatever he says. And Actually, it makes things worse, as we know from modern medicine, that you know, yes. if you're unhappy and you drink, you get more and more unhappy. Yes, quite. But then so. you can imagine if someone if someone has such a lid on it, if you like, that it's going to come out in some really quite dark way, which you could read it as that. Especially in a more repressed time as this. Yes. And I think for me, this was a really important story because I think it made me think about the way that folklore shapeshifts, chooses people is reconstituted and then moves on again. And it sort of tells us something about that moment it lands and where it's come from. But I think what's sort of alongside that, what's really interesting is that these questions are eternally preoccupying to us and that the same questions remain, you know, over hundreds of years and that they may take a slightly different form, but we're always thinking about the big life questions and the retelling of these myths and new stories are a way of exploring that. And I think this is a really interesting take. Once I'd accepted that this was the format with all these sort of slightly disparate letters and journals and newspaper clippings, once I sort of accepted that format, I thought, actually, I think I know what this author is trying to do here. It's trying to tell the story of a man's oeuvre, uh, how he goes about creating his work and how it's such a trial, how it's played by self-doubt and self-medicating and all this sort of thing. I thought it was a really interesting sort of study of the human condition, but via the prism of the narrator. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Because the, the creator is, you know, they, they carry a lot of angst, don't they? Because they need to create and 
they need to be inspired and they need to be able to tell stories. And it's almost like we're getting right into the sort of mental anguish and headache of this character as he goes on this journey. And I suppose there's also the aspect of simply that the creation of myth, which is where does that come from? And and maybe that's an analogy, you know, that myth comes from Generally, other the, people. The dark, well, also the, the dark, unexplored places or the uncertainties of the human mind, yeah. the human mind yes. Mm. And there it is in action in the story. Folklore is always butting up against where we are, but also bringing us back to some former time so we can, we can understand that, but also perhaps understand what we can't understand. I think it's nice as well that as long as we have English heritage sites, we will always have these stories and... As a result of this book, we will now have new takes on those stories. That's um, very much what we hoped. Which takes these stories into different directions and the retellings of these common themes is limitless, I think, and universal. Yes, and we imagine in, you know, 100 years, 200 years, people will will still be telling them, which is a nice thought. been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. If you'd like to buy a copy of These Our Monsters, which is out now, please head over to the English Heritage online shop. We're back next week. Until then, don't forget to like, comment, subscribe, share, and give us a rating. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hello, this is Josie Lung, here to tell you about Speaking with Shadows, a podcast series from English Heritage, presented by me. With the help of researchers and local community members, I'll bring you six stories from history that we should all be talking about. Subscribe to Speaking with Shadows, the podcast that listens to the people that history forgot, and get every episode delivered to your podcast feed for free. I can't wait for you to hear this show.